Hi, welcome everyone. Good morning. I'm sorry Carl was, was unable to be here today. Um, so as introduced, we can talk about um, how do you find the truth behind health research and some tools that we use at the center to, to find, find this truth. And so the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine is, is hosted at the Department of Primary Care and it's really about ensuring and disseminating the truth behind research in the broader community. We run training courses, publish papers, so it's really about you know, finding the evidence in the community and getting it out there to find out what's, what's true behind what's published. And often that's you know, unpicking and debunking commonly published papers or media articles. So just to get a quick sense of everyone's background in, in the audience here, so I'm wondering if you can just lift up your hand if you currently use or have used in the past the following. So Facebook, how many you currently use? Right. Okay, so the majority, almost everybody. How about Twitter? Okay. And how about written a blog? Okay, so good. So good about, about half. So this is probably a much more converted audience than on average I've given this talk to, which is, which is great to see. So what I wanted to talk about today is just define and describe some of the social media terms, which many of you will be aware of, so we'll not spend much time on that. And then talk about why blogging became important for the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine and why it's a core part of the strategy to, to, to communicate the evidence behind health research. And give some examples of this, of, tool, of examples that we've used in, in, in the general research. And outline why I think you should use it or get involved more particularly with blogging. So at any point in time, this is a really interactive session. Ask me any questions, put your hand up, interrupt me. It's about engaging and having a good discussion about the topics. And this is just, and this is, all these things are about someone's perspective on them. So this is sort of my perspective on, on these topics. So w what is social media? And this is something that I think many people often don't understand necessarily what it is and have, a, have different definitions. And I think this is the best definition I found is it was in, was in The Economist actually was it's a decentralized system whose participants took care of the distribution, deciding collectively with messages to amplify through sharing and recommendation. So the difference versus having an audience, with, which often what you have, is that it's a network public. So people are engaged and involved in, in that community. It's a community, not just an audience. And what's often surprising is not a new, new concept. So it's something that's been around for centuries. Because the concept is something about distributing a message to an, a community, a network public. And actually, social media played a major role in the Reformation five centuries ago, when just after Luther published his 95 Theses, it had been after the, the, the press had been invented. And so with, by just distributing that to, to people, it was in Latin, which was a method of, of academic writing at the time. Within two to three weeks, it was translated and throughout Europe in several weeks. And it's quite a remarkable feat, if you think, at the time. So really, but it's, it, that's what it's about. It's about community being engaged and participating <coughs> in distributing a message. And, and now we think of things like Twitter as social media, but those are just tools in our modern time that we use to participate in this. But they're not necessarily, the concept hasn't changed. So the key tools, many of you are already aware of, Facebook, which as of October, it's over a billion active viewers active users, which is quite remarkable. Basically sharing and interactive, and then blogging, which is just an online interactive journal. So many of you, many of you know this, so we'll, we'll skip the details. And Twitter is something that I'm a huge fan of, and I think it's something for, as an academic, has been something that's enabled me to stay on, on top of what's been published. And, and for a strictly professional role, it probably saves me hours a day of reading. And it really it's enables people to share and respond to quick bits of information back and forth. You can send messages to someone privately or keep it public. And then as well, you can 
follow along with hashtags, which is basically where you can go to a conference and have a unique identifier and participate and, and rank and sort information as it happens. So you can, you know, I think it's really undermining the necessity of having to be at a conference to hear about the newly published research when you can actually, just someone will just be tweeting about it and labeling it. You can ask questions remotely and participate throughout the world. And that's, so I find this, this has been a great way to, to avoid having to travel around the world, but still get the same academic debate and rigor and post questions for individuals. And I think it's push versus pull, which is about, as opposed to you going out there, trying to get information and as necessary for you, it gets pushed to you as it's relevant and as you decide and you filter it. So simple background. So how do we get involved in blogging at the center? And so Carl, a few years ago, and his a colleague, Amy, started this blog called TrustTheEvidence.net. And they were both in medical school, doing a DPhil at the time. And they would always go and have these chats at the pub. And so, and they call it the Golden Triangle. And everyone knows what, the, what three pubs that's referring to in Oxford, what the Golden Triangle. Does anyone know? So it's the Turf Tavern, the King's Arms, and the White Horse. So they form the golden triangle. So they always go and have a pint and just chat about it. And always sort of talk about how all this article was in the news, but it really was, was, mis, was you know, incorrectly portraying the findings and what can they do. So I thought, well, we could start this blog called TrustTheEvidence.net. They could write about issues and help disseminate this information to a, a broader lay audience. Because the, the traditional way of, uh, and this is where I got involved, about a year and a half ago, starting to write blogs as well around my area of interest. So I've been blogging as well for the past um, few years. Because the, the, the traditional way of academic debate, if you, if you <coughs> dis disagree with a paper, is you write an editorial or you, or you respond academically. So you write a formalized letter to the journal, which may get received and may get peer reviewed. And a few months later, the authors will respond and they're going to comment back to you. That's the, the, the general way as an academic you can, you can disagree with the finding in a formalized fashion. That's very, very slow. There wasn't really a mechanism to, to do this instantaneously because when a news article is published, it's immediate. And how can you respond to that to clarify misinformation right away? And so this was, became a source to really to put to, to, to write and portray information and, to, and help to debunk common myths. And so blogging, the, you know, the reason I found it's been great, I think there are four, four good reasons why I think it's been fantastic. Firstly, for me, I think it's a great way to shape your opinions and develop thoughts about concepts that, that simply thinking about you can't, you can't do. If you sit down and have to write something, a few hundred words around a topic, you really have to get your head around that in a, simple, in a way that thinking about it, you maybe think that you do, but often when you try to describe it, you can't. But if you have to describe something to another audience, it really makes you have to understand and appreciate what those nuances are. As well, I think, especially for a junior researcher, junior academic, it's a great way to share your thoughts and ideas and, and to put them out in the community and to publicize them in a way that peer review won't let you. You know, the traditional method, system of, of academia is very slow and, and favors conventionality, not new you know, ideas that are against it. But with the blog, just the disseminate Reddit and it's out there. As well, it's a great discussion point for when you meet other people and they're informed about your views. And you can, as well, it's about developing your online presence, putting your out ideas out there in the community of which you'll get a following and people will then ask you and respond and engage in a way that you can sort of find out people's feedback. Yeah. Um, you blog on your blog, for example, now. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I blog as, as me, as, as an individual, yeah. As opposed to someone that blog anonymously, or? Uh, like yeah. So it's a good question. So I, I blog because the, the reason I do is for understanding as well for my own profile. So I, I want it to be identified who I am and, and what I write about because those are sort of my thoughts on ticks so that helps. But some people, if they're more general, um, yeah, but it, I, th I think it depends, depends what your objective is for blogging, I think, whether you want to be anonymous or. Um, but it's a good question. And then the fourthly, I think, as well as, as a junior researcher, trying to, it's impr improves the quality of clarity of, of writing. And the, the more you can, I think, the more you can write, the better your writing becomes, especially when you're writing towards a lay audience. And often, as academics or scientists, we're very good at writing for a scientific audience, which often can be uninterpretable to an average person. You know, I try and get you know, my wife or my parents to read my blog, if, if, and if they don't get it, then I miss the point, right? And that's because that's the audience you want to get your, your message out there to, uh, to an, an average individual. And, and, that's, and, and it depends, again, about your objective. If your audience is, you know, an academic audience is not specialist, or it's a, a proper, you know, an average person that maybe probably doesn't have post-secondary training and vocabulary. So how you write is very different to the intended audience. But blogging is a great way to practice these things and to change your message in different, different formats. So the reason that the, the one of the, the st stimuli for the blog in the first place was this paper came out in The Lancet, which is for in healthcare, you know, if you can get a paper in The Lancet, it's a dream. And the dr trial is also called Dream Trial. Um, and it was about this drug called Avandia, which which has now been really scaled back off the market for multiple reasons with safety and errors. And the drug basically shows this trial that it's great, it works, it's really effective, should be used for everybody. But then when you look at, there's a single line in the abstract which basically says that basically cardiovascular events or heart failure in the, the group that receives the drug is much, much higher than in the placebo group that, that, that does not receive the drug. So actually the, the adverse event, the risk of the drug is actually quite high. But it wasn't portrayed that way. It was, and it was portrayed that it could be something used for, for many people with diabetes, not just for a specific group. And this was sort of glossed over. So Carl and a couple of others wrote an, an editorial to BMJ, you know, the academic route of trying to oppose and trying to get, get, your, get your opinion out there in the community, basically showing, you know, writing about this risk that is being glossed over. You know, people are, are forgetting that the risk of heart failure is, can be very, is very high and people aren't appreciating that. And so this was the, the traditional way. Not much happened. And then again, about a couple years ago, major, major uh, turn of events in terms of, luckily tens of thousands have died because of taking this medication because of the risks of heart attack and heart failure. And it's been severely scaled back off the market. There's about 11,000 lawsuits pending for this drug. But in a way that, that there wasn't really, the mechanism to, to, to disseminate this at the time was ineffective. You know, it didn't really change the outcome, and it was a way that, you know, and this is what one, of the, one of the first big examples that were, they really wanted to find an, an, another way, another forum to, to broadcast, you know, information, to broadcast evidence, or, or to debunk or highlight these risks. And maybe had they been able to, to broadcast this to, to, you know, to, to a lay audience, where if they were prescribed the medication, they would have questioned that, I heard about some risks about this, versus the academic group, which, is a white tower group and it's a prescribing group. So it's so one of the, the key examples of what led to this blog being started in the first place. Um, 
So I'm just going to talk through some of the examples of, of how blogging or how some of the examples, uh, how some of the, the um, articles have come out and how writing about it and what has changed as a result. That so some, some impact and some, some change that has happened. And again, interrupt me at any point in time, any questions or queries about what I'm saying. So this came out two years ago. So a new brain scan to diagnose autism. So BBC News headline. So this sounds great. Autism's something that's reasonably common and something that, you know, it's one of these emotional conditions that people get really, really impassioned about. And so there was a lot of, a lot of media coverage of this study. And what the study was, it was actually on 40 people. And the researchers, they found that they compared the brain scans of 20 adults that had autism and 20 adults that did not have autism. And they found that there were some, th some differences in the brain scan results such that the authors state that this scan could be used to, to diagnose autism with 90% accuracy. You know, so quite a, quite a you know, definitive statement, which is quite dramatic. If you imagine um, the, the possibility of diagnosing autism with 90% accuracy, I mean, that's, that's quite substantial. For a study with, with, with 40, you know, quite a small number. And it was picked up again with a Guardian, sub, you know, a lot of media coverage at the time. So we're using Twitter as a good way to get some debate. So Ben Goldecker, who we know, just his recent book, Bad Pharma, has just come out. It's really interesting if you have a chance to read it. So they, this came out, and Carl and a few people were trying to find out, well, this, this, this seems like it's too good to be true. But, but they couldn't get the paper. So there was a press release from the Medical Research Council, the Wellcome Trust, but they couldn't get the paper. No one could find the actual original study to actually read it. And as well, Ben Goldrick agreed, thinks it's you know, BS, that the press release is overplaying the actual results. Couldn't find it. But then they posted on Twitter, couldn't find it. And then someone else within a couple hours was able to, to send in the paper and find it. So within a few hours, they were able to get a full copy of that. And so goes back to the blog and, and, and writes an article about this, basically describing why th this press release and why the study is overstating the actual results, that, that it's, it's incorrect and misinterpreting the findings. Puts it back on Twitter a couple hours later and gets picked up by someone at The Guardian who then asks him if he can write an, a, an article to be published by tomorrow. And the next day, article in The Guardian that Carl published. Basically, why the, the, the article was misleading and why the way it was portraying it was, was incorrect. So this is you know, literally within tw under 24 hours this happened, of finding the paper, writing a blog, and getting asked to put it on The Guardian in a way that you know, the, the, the traditional way of academic you know, opposition, we're, we're really not able to do this in a way that the audience you want to get this to is, 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 the, is a lay audience, is a, is, a, is a community audience. And so, and it didn't stop there. And well, so the main concern was that basically they were saying that, that this test could be used to diagnose, which is very, very different than when you describe two, two groups and then you apply that. But then there was a press release that was, because that, the study was done by the Medical Research Council, Wellcome Trust, and there was a press release. And this led to the MRC adjusting and, and changing their press release to modify Rec as to recognize that what they, what they said originally was slightly incorrect and that the, it was slightly misleading. So they amended the title of the press release. And back on the Guardian website, uh, the MRC press office responded on t to that article 
with the adjusted response from the author, how they were modifying the press release. And this is quite a good example, I think, of, of where this blogging really enabled something substantial to be, ha to, to be changed fairly quickly in a way that, you know, this is the MRC and the Wellcome Trust, quite big bodies, that this basically was a press release was changed and they really sort of shook the foundations in a way that I think um, often when things are portrayed, they're just accepted as, as fact and not enough people are really questioning the underlying. Everyone, it's a good headline, it sounds great, good news story, without really trying to unpick, well, does this really make sense? Is this really true? And the implications of this to the, to the broader audience. Yeah. No, so the, the press release overstated. So the, 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 there was this confusing with, the, with terms of diagnosis. So the paper itself was, was, was fine the way it was portrayed. It was the way that it was interpreted in the press release to make it seem something that it, that it wasn't was what was problematic. But the fact that no one could find the paper means it's highly unlikely anyone even read the paper to, to find out that the way it was written in the news article was actually incorrect. And the actual you know, accuracy was 5%. If you were to apply that to you know, an average person that comes in, not 90%. And, and the implications of you know, false positives and the cost of that, you know, an MRI and the, the, the implications. So it was sort of, it was very, very oversimplified and didn't capture the complexity of which it was required for something, of, for, for, for a topic that's actually quite complicated. Any other questions? So I'll give you another example. Um, so I was asked to review a paper for the BMJ about two years ago, which was great, you know, was delighted and humbled and said yes. And a nice thing that the BMJ does is after you review, they actually give you, as a thank you gift, a one-year subscription to the, to, to the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, just to, to use that, you know, for free access as a thank you token for your, because peer review is something you do of the goodness of your heart. You don't get anything generally for it. But as being in an academic setting you know, in Oxford, we always have access to journals all the time. So this, this subscription really didn't, I didn't find that it wouldn't, have really, wouldn't really help me. But they, and BMJ actually allows you to forward that subscription to someone else as a, as a gift to forward it along. So a few years ago, before coming to Oxford, I spent a summer doing an elective in Uganda. And I met a physician there I stayed in touch with. So I emailed him to see if, you know, would, would, would he want the subscription? Because I don't, I, don't, I don't need it. Would he find it useful? And he did. He didn't have access to this. Although most research is open access, most of the educational and comment is behind paywall. So he said yes, so I passed it along to him. And then the, the editor that actually invited me to do this, I saw him at a conference a few months later, and I told him that what I what I did, and he said, well, that's a great idea. You should, you should respond you know, as a rapid response on, you know, about having, you know, as a way to increase open access to research to other individuals. Because you think of most people that peer review likely are from in a setting of which they don't need a free subscription to a journal. They're lucky in a university. So this potentially could be a, you know, a small way to, to forward along access to help people that really need it in settings where they don't get free open access. So then I wrote a little rapid response on to an article, and a, a colleague of mine from Malaysia also responded that they ha have, a, have a lot of problems with this. And then I, I disseminated this on Twitter, just about you know, an interesting way to increase open access to research. 
And a day later, I received an email from a colleague, someone who I followed on Twitter, never met before, from Australia, and was saying, interested, uh, it's an interesting idea. I wonder if we could find out, do other journals do this too? Is it something that just the, the BMJ does? Or maybe would, would all the other big journals? Because if, if, if many of them do something such simple, if you, if you could combine that together, that could really have a meaningful impact in individuals in, in third world or low-income settings that don't actually have access to these things. So long and the short of it, we ended up doing a little study and we got a letter published in the, the, CMA, the BMJ equivalent in Canada called the CMAJ, which is quite a high-impact journal. And really, the BMJ was the only journal that actually did this. Lancet did it as well for three months, but that was it. And something, and these are with two people that I've never met before. Both live in Australia, only communicated via email, met via Twitter, and then we put it online that it's you know the first publication with people known only on Twitter. It's now online. And this is something that, you know, I think that's quite a measurable impact for me as a junior researcher to be a published letter. And then there was the other group, this global surgeon that has published several papers in the Lancet with people I've only ever met on Twitter. Because he does a lot of work with people in, in Central Africa where they just cannot physically meet. So a lot of work with people they never met before. So this was an example of really integrating in, in a way that social media brought everyone together in a totally horizontal fashion, which we didn't need to meet face to face. But I wouldn't would never have met unless it was on Twitter. And then I wrote an, a blog about it as well to further disseminate. And, and, um, and so I think this is another example for me personally where I failed. I had quite a lot of, I benefited you know, academically from a purely academic fashion, quite in a pretty substantial way from being on Twitter, which a lot of my colleagues would be very surprised with that how Twitter could help me get a paper published in a peer reviewed journal. But, and there's quite a few, lot of examples of these, of people when you ask about them. Yeah. Good question. So, so Twitter primarily, and then um, we have Google Analytics to track the website and see how many people will, will log on and read it afterwards. And usually there's quite a big, big spike. And then depending on who, or what the article is about, you know, certain people you may try and text. So I wrote a blog a couple months ago about an article that Ben Goldacre wrote in the British Medical Journal about the number of reprints that are ordered from journals depending on who funds the study. So showing that studies funded by drug companies have you know, substantially more number of reprints ordered. So I, I wrote a blog and tweeted that and then he retweeted that. And so that's going to about 230,000 followers from that and stuff. So it's, if you don't know certain, what you're writing about, the certain people to try and be made aware of it so they can see if they can disseminate. Because for him, it, it's great. I mean, it's, for these academics, usually it's, it's beneficial for them because you're writing about their research. And it, so, this, so depending on what it is, but usually just Twitter, and then usually a couple times in different times of the day, but that seems to be usually enough. The, it's, it's, it's under the assumption that you've developed a community that is aware of of you know of the brand for better for better word of it you know that 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 so they are aware of what of what you're talking about or or who you are or who's writing about different things so so this has been the blog has been up for about three to four years so there's a, a reasonable community of people that are aware of of their writings and but it does does just take time to to get so if you're starting in the beginning it's you know it takes a bit of of, of effort you know to, to create a community but I think it's definitely people are. I don't think people are inherently lazy, but people are inherently, if you can make something, send, send someone to a resource that's very simple and concise and easy for them to read, 
that avoids them having to read a 5,000 word paper and they can read a 300 word blog, people will really appreciate that. And so I think if you can find a community of people that really, you know, like you're a filter for information that they want to go to you and they trust you. So it's about it's sort of building your presence. So it's slow. So I was lucky that I went on something that already had slightly of a brand, but, but then again, it's, it's sort of something, it's an, a real active process. Yeah. Do, do you have any other suggestions or any other? So, so he, he has his blog, which he writes regularly, which, but he, so he won't ever, now I don't know if he lets anyone write on his blog, but he'll, but his Twitter account has a huge number of following. So if he, if he retweets you or mentions you or forwards someone to your blog, then that has a, a substantial impact because of just that audience that gets it out to you. But you end up meeting, you know, there's quite a few journalists I've now linked up with, you know, uh, there's a Reuters, a Reuters journalist who really good, and they end up just having an article that they find interesting, and then they start following you, and then you sort of create a community. So, you know, a couple of articles at Christmas time I wrote about the risk of poisoning with poinsettias, like a sort of a, a joke article. Well, about the, you know, the evidence behind, you know, the risk of children with poinsettia ingestion, and, and then a couple of journalists liked it, and so they sent it out, and that's about 10,000 followers each. So pretty quickly you get a, a following, but then how many actually, you know, visit versus read, it's, you know, Hard to say, but but it's I think that's and it's something that's changing fast. I, I don't, but I think just I think it's all part of uh, you know a brand of having a Twitter account and people following you know who you are and what you write about. Sort of being a consistent message across, and so I think being consistent and having a certain area people rely on you I think is important. Yeah, so it's good. So I don't at all for academic settings. I use it. I use Twitter strictly for professional, and I will rarely ever post a message without having a link attached to it. And so I really just post just updates of, um, but Facebook, I, I don't use it at all. I keep it personal. And so people have different opinions on that. And I think it depends on what your community or network is. But, but I've, 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 I find it slightly different. And I don't necessarily think it, it, it helps me achieve my objective. Do you have any other thoughts on Facebook? Or? I do post, actually, I, I post on my blogs because I have a lot of you know, friends that are medical students, doctors, so they may find it relevant. But generally, I think that audience for me is a slightly different audience. But, but yeah, it's interesting. I think it depends on what, your, what the composition of your Facebook is and how you've used it in the past. Yeah, I think there's lots of overlaps. I and mean, lots of people have their, their Twitter and Facebook accounts linked. So whatever they, they post goes on both. Um, some organizations do that. So Evidence Live, a conference that we're organizing, we have a Facebook page and a Twitter account. So whatever gets posted, it gets shared. But you know, the, our Facebook uptake, I think, has been a lot lower. And I think it just depends on your audience and what they're engaged in. And, um, but I think there's no, there's no right or wrong. It's whatever has been successful for you and whatever you found. I think Twitter definitely has a, much, has a, a very minimal skeleton. And that what your profile is the things that you've posted. And that's basically it. Whereas Facebook, I think, has capacity for quite a lot of additional information, which I think that's where I differentiate. With, I think the interaction bit is, is different. Where Twitter, it's very much of, you know, you just post what you want, and it can almost be zero interaction if you want it that way. Where Facebook, by definition, is a lot more of, a, of an engagement, interacting, can be personal. But it, again, it's how you set it up and how you manage it. And so I do, I do have a LinkedIn account. I think for me personally, I don't think it has added any, anything additional to mine. But I think it seems like something as in the business setting, it's quite different, where I have colleagues that you know, they'll add a skill on LinkedIn, and then within a day, they'll have 10 job opportunities. You know? uh, whereas I think in medicine, 
my opinion, I think it's less valuable uh, compared to Twitter. Um, but I think in other settings it may be different. But that's just been my experience with it. But other people think it's great. And yeah. So I think Google Plus has been pretty unsuccessful. I mean, I think it's overall, I, I've signed up for it, but I'd, I don't really necessarily understand it that much, how it differentiates from, from Facebook, other than the fact that you can directly on links, you know, Google Plus things in a way that's a bit different. But, but for most of the uptake from anecdotally seems to be very, very low from my colleagues. And, and I, don't th I think it's an additional feature, but I don't, I, don't, I don't find, I certainly haven't engaged with it. But I don't know if people have other opinions, but yeah, it seems to be sort of a cross between a lot of things in one. But part of Google's strategy, I think, to have it integrated everything with, with Google Drive and stuff. But, but anyways, they're all, I mean, they're all, it's about whatever works for you. And I think there's, it's about developing a personalized strategy. And a lot of that, I think, what you use is historical on what you started using at a time, of which if you started using Facebook, I started using Facebook personally, and it wasn't even professional, it didn't even cross my mind. Whereas now, if you started, if I started today, it might have been different. So a lot of it is what you've used and how that's been characterized. So um, just again, other examples of Twitter. So this is, so I find this is a really neat, interesting example. So there was a lot with the NHS health bill, which has been very controversial in many, many different layers. But there's always a, tr a, a frustration with lack of trustworthiness of information in the, out there. So particularly this was, with um, David Cameron last year had said that someone in this country is twice as likely to die from a heart attack as someone in France. Okay, so, is that, so what does that mean? Does that mean that someone from France who with the, the diet and genetic and lifestyle factors has a lower risk of death from cardiovascular mortality or that someone is twice likely to die because the hospitals in the UK are not very good? And they mean very different things of how you interpret them. And pretty quickly, massive Twitter debate raged. And it really found out that th these were very selective use of certain studies to, to, to support this argument. And actually, within a day, there was a major rebuttal by a think tank about why that particular statement was incorrect or, or, in, or inappropriate to use without many contextual modifiers. And one thing that Twitter, I think, really to engage with it, it allows other people to do a lot of the legwork in a way that it saves you time from doing. So very few people will want to sift through a 350-page draft bill, but the few that do can do it and then post the key findings uh, to, to allow you to refine that. So I think it can be quite efficient, again, about you have a community of people of, the, of who has spent the time doing the particular detail work to share it with you in the way that collectively you can be much better off and, and gained as a whole. So, and this is one other thing that I think is changing now academic-wise is, is this trial by Twitter. So the way that academic output is being evaluated is, ver is shifting substantially from less of, of a focus on impact factor to, to other metrics. And so this was an article in Nature about how generally the academics have, are unable to, to take this onslaught of criticism that happens immediately when a paper is published. You know, right away within a day you have you know, just dozens of pretty substantial criticisms. So what's happening is that basically peer review, mentioned before, it's very slow and it favors conventionality. So it favors the, 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 the traditional way of thinking. Not, so by definition, if something is new, generally it's very hard to get published because most of the peer reviewers are traditional. Citation counting 
can be helpful for a paper, but it really, really takes years to actually measure the impact of something that you've published. And then journal impact factor is a black box of how that's determined. How it's, it's, you know, owned by a company that calculates it. It's uncertain how that's done. And it really measures the impact of a journal, not an individual paper. And people oft, often miss, I think, misinterpret the impact of a paper by the journal impact factor. So when, what's changing now? Well, there's more and more articles are now being stored online, on online reference browsers like Mendeley and Zotero, which have several million on them. More of these of the old hallway conversations and discussions are now being posted online in blogs, like Trusty Evidence. You know, at least up to a third of scholars, academic scholars now using Twitter, you know, academically. And more and more data sets are being stored online. So what's this creating is it's it's coined this term altmetrics, which is which is how, how you trace this usage, this uptake of information. So it's, it's the creation and study of new metrics based on the social web for analyzing and informing scholarships. So it's, it's saying, well, how can we capture all these other conversations, these other discussions in a way that, that, the, that the traditional impact doesn't? So if, if, you, if something you've published you know, changes a national guideline, that wouldn't be tracked in the traditional method because that hasn't been cited in a peer-reviewed published paper. And so why, why it's superior and why I think it's important is that it's much, it's, it's much more co complex and that it captures a, a diversity of discussion. You know, it's more of like an ecosystem of what's happening in the community of multiple different level, levels. It measures a greater aggregate of research more than just a, what's published in a journal as well as what's being discussed in blogs, on news articles. And it it's really tracks impact outside of the White Tower which traditionally that's all that, that we've measured academically. And it's fast and open, it's immediate. You know, immediately something gets published, you can write a response. And so, so you can get a sense fairly quickly what the uptake or how, how important or, or controversial something is in a way that you wouldn't really be able to tell otherwise. And it really reflects more the individual article itself not the venue or where it was published, not the journal. It's, it's the individual finding. So I think it's, it's something that it's a fast-changing field, and the, the, the challenge is, is about how, how to use big, big data sets to, to make, make meaning of that. So the people that are coining this are trying to develop software. So some of the, I don't know if Wikipedia exactly, but I know if, it's about how they refine sources. I think news articles, I think, are included, but it depends on, on what specific tool. But, it's, but I think it's about capturing that sort of use. Um, I think I, I would be surprised if it's not, but I, I can't definitively say. But the, the, the people that started this, there was a couple of students in the States, and they've now finished and gone off to try and start a company to, to, to try and actually um, you know, demonstrate the, the impact of using this empirically. And so far, it's, 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 it's as good as, as the traditional methods at determining the impact of, of a paper. So they looked at all of the, the public library of science journals, they're called the PLOS journals, which have all been open access, and to see the impact. And it's actually been fairly good at predicting uh, impact and citation compared to the, the, the traditional ways. And so it's a more of a complex you know, idea of, of what impact means. Not just citations, it's about, is it being used? How many people have, have viewed the article, have downloaded the paper? Um, is it being peer-reviewed? Are there many blogs about it? Is it being cited? And how many people are storing that in, in their online reference library because they want to use it later on? So it's, it's about 
taking impact from what used to be a quite a narrow definition and broadening it out. So this is where I think it's, it's important to consider these things, yeah. I mean, potentially, I mean, impact factor is quite, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's owned by a company and the way it's determined is by number of denominator and numerator and that can, a journal can shift, you know, four in one year, you know, and so there's, it's quite clear, but this is just making it more, more complicated. So you likely could, but it's a, a heck of a lot more complicated and it would, and, it, and hopefully has a, a more accurate, I mean, it shouldn't replace, I think it's just an, another way where it's, it's broadening what you look at. But, it, you know, and they try and do, you know, to track IPs and stuff. But really, I mean, someone wants to game, they're going to do their best to try and game. But I think it's, this makes it a lot harder. And, and I guess it's less about focusing on impact as to capture the, all, the, the different impacts of your, your research. So not just looking at the impact of your research isn't defined by how many times someone else has cited it in their discussion in a peer-reviewed paper. It's about, well, has this been used to change guidelines or being used to for others? So it's about getting more complex of what you've done and, and, to, and to track that and measure that in an empiric way. Was there a question? Do you have, no? So an example of this is, so Public Library of Science, PLOS. Have many, have, have many of you heard of Public Library of Science or PLOS? Yeah, so, so this is the paper that has the most ever viewed paper of all time called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False by John Ioannidis. And so PLOS has really been leaders in evaluating and, develop and, and pushing the alt metrics. So they, when they set up their journal in the start with, they refuse to, to you know, endorse impact factor. They, they think one look at the other ways. And so every paper that's published has this metric box on the side. When you click on it, you can, you, it opens up and it shows, you know, a, a, you know, a, I think a much more detailed impression of, of the impact of this article in terms of number of times it's been viewed and downloaded, number of times it's stored in an online database, sometimes it's been cited or shared on Facebook. Or put, so it's getting a, a more of a, of a complex metric of, of how this is being, being used in a way that I think it, maybe it's, it's it will show exactly the same impact, but it, g it gives you a sense of something that if something is never cited, it doesn't mean it's not useful. Because if your audience is a different audience, that wouldn't be citing, if you're doing something for a certain audience that may not ever lead it to get, pub to get cited again, because it's, it's, that's it, and that's for a certain group, and that's that. But, so this is where, and I think it's interesting to, to follow, and, and this now, I looked at this again yesterday, and it's at 675,000 views already. So, and I think what it comes down to, I think, as our experience in the center and personally, is just about having, you know, some sort of strategy, some idea of, of what you want to get out of social media. And, and so it's about determining, you know, your objectives and, and how you want it to help you. And then focusing on, on doing, on identifying the best tools for you. And I think that really depends on, there's, there's, they all have, are very useful in their own right. It's just about what you personally like to use and what, what you want to achieve by using those things. So this Evidence Live is a conference that we're running in Oxford next March, and it's really trying to be at the forefront of, of, of the evidence debate and of the, of the discussion. So it's trying to create a community of individuals to, to link up, to talk about this, these issues. And so in doing that, we want to try and engage in multiple ways by, we have a blog as well, to try and disseminate the research to get it to the community to talk about our findings. And then it's a well, as well about well, what have we done? Well, so this summer, a big project we did was looking at the evidence behind sports products. There was a BBC Panorama <coughs> show in the summer about the truth behind sports 
products. And so we had this, did a bunch of papers looking at this, but it you know, got quite a lot of media coverage. So this is where we used our Facebook page to share it as well. But it's just about having some idea of how you can take what you've done and maximize it getting out in the community to the people that, that you want to read it and to see it. And lots of it requires you repeating things and sending, going on tweeting your blog several times at different times to see maybe it wasn't just the, it was just the wrong time you put it out there. There actually was a study looking at the best time to tweet. And it was that, if I remember this correctly, it was around noon and five, you know, when people are, and this, this is in, this, in the US, so it would be a whole an hour later here, when people are going on their lunch break, you know, they often pull out their phone and then check their Twitter account. And so they've tracked, you know, at certain times and how many people will link through. So things like that are playing around, when's the right time to get it out there? And oftentimes it's bad luck, we try it again. And then Carl now has set up his own individual blog himself to, to bring together all the different bits of information from different blogs, different articles, and to just to pull these bits together. And it's an ongoing strategy of now as well trying to put blogs on different forums on the BMJ. Or, so it's about trying to get as many avenues as you can to, to get the message out there. Different forums, different audiences. And you know, the, the group that reads the British Medical Journal blogs will be a different group likely than will read Trust the Evidence blog. And so it's, it's about the message getting out there as many ways as you can find possible. So why I think you should use social media and blogging particularly is because it's a great way to engage individuals in dialogue and debate and you create a community of, of individuals that, that's interacting and you, and you can find out who can help you in the future if you have a message you want to disseminate or who can help, who, can, who you can help to help disseminate their message in your community. Um, it's really, I think, with Twitter particularly, restricting the characters I think is, forces brevity in a way that I think as an academic we often are, can be very you know, long-winded and often are not very concise. So having to say a key tagline in 140 characters I think is challenging, but I think if, if you can't say it in that, then you necessarily don't know what your key messages are of what you're doing, or a few key Twitter messages. And so getting it out and refining down to what are the key taglines, and it's free and available to everyone. There's no paywalls, it's to and, it, and it's totally horizontal. There's no barriers to access. You, know, you can send a message to the editor of the biggest journal in your field if they're on Twitter, and there's nothing stopping you from doing that. There's not stopping you responding to Ben Goldacre and saying his last, his book, you know, he missed this point, he should change this, and then there'll be an interaction. He may not, but, he, but he, maybe he will. And so I think this is where it's a, it's a great interactive, flat, horizontal network that I've found it's been great for, for my personal profession. And, and the tide is shifting, it's something that, that's inevitable. And I think you being here is testament to realizing how it's important. And the faster, I think, get on board with it, the better it is for you. And, and before long, you know, it's gonna, everyone will be doing it and it, will, will, it won't have as many discriminatory advantages for you as, a, as an academic or as, a, as an employee. And another way, you know, what, so this is an, a great way to say, if you do, can't find papers, to ask people to send them to you and to find out what's new has been published. You know, if you, it's about having a strategy. Again, if you don't, it's about staying up to date. So in medicine, in our field, there's published stuff every day. But how do you know what actually, what other GPs think in primary care, as an example, actually changes their practice? You know, there's tons, 20, 30 papers a day that are relevant, but which of them actually change what they've done? So how do you know that? We can put it on Twitter, and then before you know you have a list of the top five papers that have changed practices that, that, that you can disseminate and write about. And so it's just having, thinking of a way that, that you're gonna try and stay up to date in your field. And maybe it's Twitter or Facebook, or, but it's just thinking about how you will stay up to date with these things. 
So that's really it. It's about people and creating a network public. So I want to leave time for lots of questions so everyone can, if I can answer anything, give my opinion on things. But don't take anything I say to be truth. It's my experience and I think it's, your social media profile is very much affected by, you know, what you want out of it and how you've started in history and because it's such a fast changing field. I think that, I think it's better patients are getting more informed now than before. I mean, medicine traditionally was very, you know, a paternalistic profession where patients went in and there was a decision made and that was for them. And I think the better, the more patients can be aware and knowledgeable is useful, but it's about having, it's sure they have the correct knowledge is the challenge. Um, and patients do use this, you know, in the U.S., at least a third of patients use social media to make, to, to, to decide where they go, what hospital they go to, what doctor they see, and so it's being used. I, I don't know, I don't know if I necessarily agree that, that that will change their decisions and whether being aware of placebo effect will negate its effect at all, because I think most people, I think, often are quite aware of it now. And, and herd immunity, I mean, that's an interesting question. I, 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 I don't think that that would, I mean, in the end, someone will decide to immunize or not immunize, I think, for their own personal decisions. I think herd immunity has a very minimal factor in someone's personal decision. It's a lot of, I mean, it's on the list, but I think hierarchically it's much lower than the risk of, say, autism that was incorrectly attributed or other things. But I think, but and so a lot of physicians have been really engaged to use this to, to propagate positive information accurately to their patients as well to help negate the negative stuff out there. But the, it could be equally as misused for other groups. So a friend of mine is doing research on multiple sclerosis and the new um, CCSVI therapy, uh, which is basically this unlike theory of what causes multiple sclerosis. But, uh, and the evidence so far is, is unclear, if anything. It causes, defending most recently causes more harm than benefit. But there's been a real patient empowerment and lots of these YouTube videos of patients going on and showing a video of the before and after and post and getting you know tens of thousands of views and shares, but it's actually been funded by the companies that run the clinics that are funding it. But it's but it's but it, it seems like it's someone that's doing it themselves. So it's, and that's really causing misinformation. So I think that there are potential for harm of it you know being misused. But I think that's no different from any tool or, or the current things that we use now being misused. So often I favorite there's a way you favorite where you can send sends you the, an email with the link is another way. Um, often I'll retweet something if, or if I think then it's it, then it's mine, then I've, that's sort of how, what I often do. Um, it's, a good, it's a good question, and do you use TweetDeck? Or do you use you? I haven't yet, no, no, no. Yeah, so TweetDeck, uh, do any of you use TweetDeck? So it's, it looks like this, and so where, Twitter can just be a mass overload of information as a direct column. But TweetDeck is, uh, allows you to, to create unique lists. So what I've done in medicines, I've created a list of, list of, all, of all of the journals, for example. And so you can create a column with just that specific list. So one column will just be all the tweets by the journals I've, I've selected. So you can predefine the list that you want. And, then the, and so I think that really helps to sort in a way that it gets to the, the source that you want, not necessarily the time instantaneously. So I think that's really been, I, I don't know how I could live without TweetDeck, because it, it also is just so much information. Um, and then in terms of storing, I think, the fa I don't know if, I, does anyone have a better idea of how you save tweets or information for later? There's another tool called Read It Later, 
which is, uh, I think you can add it on Firefox and Chrome. So if, you would, if you're on a browser and you would click a link, you can just click read it later and it, and it will put it in this little list for you to come back to. So there, is, there was just a recent, about a few months ago, they actually determined a, a method to accurately cite. So it is acceptable to cite a tweet. Um, and I can, I can find the link, but there was, an, uh, some, there was an article actually about how it now became official and, and describing how to actually cite it. Sure, I can oh, make it, yeah, I will, yeah. But I think because it's often, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like a personal communication in a lot of ways, is I think what it's similarly referred to. Because if it's the article itself, you would refer to the article. So if it's just, if it's a, if it's a, a text with no secondary source. I think time is something, time is something to, to manage because it can, it, can, it can be too good and, you, and it can take you, spend a lot of time reading things that maybe aren't necessarily as interesting um, and useful. So I think it takes some trial and error to start with, definitely to get it right. So you can get some people be quite aggressive and to respond to your viewpoints quite negatively. Um, but again, you can just, I just don't respond if someone's being, uh, again, it's, you can decide your level of engagement with individuals that respond. Um, and so some people, I've had some negative responses where I posted some articles and someone you know, didn't, wasn't very favorable of that, or a blog. And we posted a recent one on autism and people have quite an interesting, not very positive response. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's so, unless, someone, unless you follow someone, they can't direct message you. So they can just, they can just at, re reply to you of which just negatively respond. On the blog, I haven't had any negative comments or response. Only Twitter, but, but I find it very in, infrequent, and I think it happens, but people just tend to block it out. Or, and you can block someone if they're abusing. You can report, like you get spam emails, you can report spam, you can do similar. But, uh, but so far, I, I haven't. Uh, maybe that's, it's, it's my day is coming soon, I'm not <laughs> sure. But. Yeah, no, we, we haven't found we've got a lot of comments on m most things. I don't know, because people, I think people are somewhat reserved to, it depends how you set the comment filter. If you have someone has to register and then not be not anonymous or whether they can do anonymous postings. Generally, we haven't got, if anything, most of the comments will just be, be via Twitter. It's the secondary, but we haven't got a lot. And, and we haven't necessarily tried that, to change the strategy around getting comments because it hasn't really been, I don't, I don't know what that, what that, if that adds, but I think some sites have been really good. There's one called The Evidence um, Healthy Debate, which is a one in Canada, similar, and they get a lot of comments, but, but they really target a, a, real, a real lay audience, a non-academic audience that, that really engages a lot and participates in the discussion, but they really facilitate and, and respond and really act. And I think, if, I think they've tried hard to, to generate comments and, and respond, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I, that, that would increase. It's just something for your audience. And we've had some comments, but they've. But yeah, I don't, I don't, that's interesting. We haven't really had a lot. I don't know if that's because the community has been more just they read it and then that's it, and they don't necessarily tend to comment. Or the ones that comment just will put something on Twitter. Has anyone else had positive experience with comments or or to generate comments? How was your blog? Do you get yeah, we definitely get spam. Most of the comments, you sort of have this half excited cheer to get a comment, but it's usually spam.